Hello and welcome to episode 6 of the Climate Change and Health podcast from UCL. I'm your host, Harry Canard, and in today's episode I'm talking to Dr. Marco Springman all about diet and health. Marco is a senior researcher at the Environmental Change Institute at the University of Oxford, and his main interests are in the health, environmental and economic dimensions of the global food system. In the spirit of full disclosure, he and I have uh, worked on some papers together. And when he and I were chatting just now, he put in a request for some techno music to be included in the podcast, as he's a fan. He asked specifically for Helena Hauf, and uh, unfortunately, uh, she doesn't have any free music available. Uh, we operate on a tight budget here at the podcast. So uh, I had a look at freemusicarchive.org and pulled out some biometric, which I thought was quite appropriately named for today's episode. I don't think it's technically techno. Uh, it's not my field of expertise, but uh, you can hear that at the end. And uh, my thanks to the, the artists there. You can check out the rest of their work. Uh, it's also uh, important for me to give my normal thanks to Kevin McLeod for the track Funkerific, uh, which is the theme tune of this podcast. I found out on freepd.com. So without any further ado, here's my chat with Marco about diet, agriculture, and their impacts on health and climate change. I hope you enjoy it. Thanks for listening. delighted to welcome uh, Dr. Marco Springman to the podcast. I start all these podcasts by asking whoever I'm talking to to give a little background about how they got interested in environmental issues and specifically on the work you work on now, which is the impacts of diets, essentially broadly broadly defined. Is that, is that the right thing to say, Marco? Yeah, you can say so. Um, it was a very long, uh, long and winded road uh, in my case, really. So I was specializing in my PhD on uh, theoretical particle physics and especially mm. string theory, and um, in a in a program in the states, so where you still have to do quite a lot of coursework. And I remember uh, coming to this uh, string theory class. It took me ages to be able to take uh, to to build up to to understand what 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 was written on the blackboard there. But it was uh, um, yeah one of those days where in the news were again some elections in some random country country and civil wars breaking out uh, afterwards. Uh, uh, these days it could be just as well sort of the the US and the UK, but back then it was a place in right, sub-Saharan right. Africa. <laughs> um, but I really thought, oh, uh, maybe I should do something more useful with my life than thinking about some funky transformations in 10 plus 1 dimensions. Um, <laughs> that, that's interesting. Um, it's sort, that's sort of the same path I had in a way. I think I, I, I fell off the theoretical physics uh, train uh, much earlier than you. I never got to the anywhere near string theory, but um, uh, I had a similar sort of feeling. Uh, there was <laughs> at some point you think, uh, why not Yeah, do something useful? Yeah. Sorry, yes. I, I interrupted you. But um... no, no, that's all fine. It seems like physicists are sort of predestined to uh, jump fields, really. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like over, over the years, you meet quite a few, right? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, and I guess the, the nice thing with physics is you're you're so butchered to learn sort of um, uh, maths, coding, and all kinds of stuff that give you a little bit of flexibility of what other uh, at least quantitative field you want to work in. So with my interest, I thought, oh, well, you know, I can probably do something about climate change research. Um, so I changed from uh, physics department to the atmospheric science department and did a year of research on 
uh, aerosol physics and chemistry, uh, looking at oh, wow. particles yeah. and what goes on there. Uh, and at the same time, you know, taking classes on climate change and all that. Um, and I thought, yeah, yeah okay, that, that's all cool. And, and I sort of uh, enjoy it. But uh, at the same time, I was thinking, well, you know, the, the, the science is pretty well established. I mean, it can always be better, but it's established enough to uh, give uh, politicians something to act upon. And they surely should right. do so. Um, so why is nothing happening? So I thought, uh, okay, maybe instead of natural science, I really should do social science. So I switched then. I said after a year, well, give me a master's in physics for uh, a year of research and I do uh, go off and do some social science. Yeah. So I did another degree in sustainability uh, after this. Um, um, and then did my PhD that I eventually finished <laughs> on distributional impacts of global climate policies, looking at what would happen if you shift emissions responsibilities from a production side to a consumption side. Uh, right. And during this, suddenly the food system pops up uh, to quite some degree. I mean, if, if you chuck it to all kinds of production uh, sectors, you don't see it so much. But if you collect it in, in terms of a consumption responsibility, um, angle, then uh, it's quite big there. And at the same time, I was always interested in uh, the health implications of dietary change. So I right. thought, well, for my postdoc work, I could maybe combine the um, climate change work that I had been dealing with and with my personal interest on healthy diets and look yeah. at healthy and sustainable diets. And yeah, for the last eight, eight and a half years, uh, I've been on that. <laughs> That's where you've been. Wow, that's uh, that's quite a story. It sort of it, it actually resonates very much. I think I I mean I haven't ended up in exactly the same place, but I I think I did the same. I think I did the same journey. So I started on the theoretical physics thing, and then uh, at some point got very dissatisfied with it and thought I really need to do linguistics. And so I I, <laughs> I shifted fields and sort of justified it from a sort of uh, sort of justified it from a, uh, being really into Chomsky, which I really wasn't. I didn't understand what Chomsky was saying or anything about that generative stuff. But I, I really like the sort of the, the social constructed aspect of, of language, you know, the yeah. changing. And wasn't accent. he all wrong in linguistics? Well, I think that's, yeah. I mean, that's, that's the other thing is it's, it's, I think that was my intuition was, is a little bit. Yes. Um, <laughs> sorry, no. Uh, but yeah. And then, and then from that sort of arrived energy uh, because it was this somehow this sort of meeting of the, of the both the sort of quality quantitative stuff. And then also a, a sort of a, a relevance that, that really, isn't it's not it's not there in theoretical physics but it's it's sort of harder to it's harder to justify your efforts somehow yeah exactly and i mean if you work for i don't know five years on some minuscule aspect that doesn't really yeah. push the boundary of right. knowledge uh much then yeah you, you ask yourself what is your contribution right <laughs> and is exactly. it really needed there <laughs> yeah exactly there may um yeah, low fr hanging fruit is probably the uh, if I if I labour the uh, the metaphor. There is more low hanging fruit in in the fields that we found ourselves in. Uh, to which uh, uh, it's sort of a, a useful segue um, towards my my first question, I suppose, or my second. Um, so, really central to your uh, to your research is this um, observation that different diets have different health impacts, um, and so intuitively people uh, people know that eating is important. Uh, and intuitively, people know that um, different things have different effects on how they feel and eventually how uh, what their health uh, outcomes are. But can you outline a little bit how that process works, uh, how it is that different foods impact our health in, in different ways? 
Yeah, or, or maybe stepping back one uh, uh, one step to think about how we know uh, that different foods. Yes, have different yeah, of course. Yeah, we, we, we can yeah. start with that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've, you know, I didn't appreciate that for a really long time. It was only during my physics PhD studies that I had come across uh, uh, epidemiological cohort studies that attempt to, in a rigorous way, study what are the relative impacts of eating, for example, one more serving of fruit and veg or one more serving of red and processed meat uh, and all of those things uh, that I really started appreciating. Oh, there is actually a, a very good science uh, behind studying healthy eating. Um, that goes beyond sort of this folks, uh, folksy knowledge of, oh, yeah, just just eat a bit of everything, right? Um, yeah. Actually, we know now fairly well what are healthy limits or uh, uh, relative healthy guidelines for, uh, for eating. And um, the best evidence we have from those are from what are called meta-analysis of epidemiological cohort studies. Uh, Meta-analysis are, study, are studies that collect different uh, individual studies, so di different individual cohort studies, and uh, with some statistical wizardry, uh, construct a consensus estimate from those studies. Those cohort studies, so any individual cohort study, just for a bit of background, they involve like tens to hundreds thousands of participants. And um, how it works is you recruit them at some point and you administer quite a lot of surveys. Sometimes you measure stuff yourself uh, and you collect um, what are their lifestyles? How much do they weigh? Do they smoke? How much, how much physical activity do they do? And very critically for healthy eating, what do they eat? Right? How much, yeah. uh, how many fruits and veg, how much red meat and all those things. And you need quite a lot of Number, high numbers because in the end you want to find groups of people that are the same on all aspects but differ only in one for example the amount of red meat they eat um, and not only do you need a large number to find those two statistical groups but you also need a high number because you actually need to wait quite a bit you need to wait that uh, people in those cohorts get ill and that usually uh, i mean that might happen all the time depending on what your baseline age is in those cohorts but usually you know even from the time people get ill and you want to make sure that at baseline they are not ill right because otherwise that might be um, introduce confounding effects because you don't know what they're getting ill from so you need to wait until they get ill from a relatively healthy state in those cohorts and then usually until they die uh, because you want to uh, also record from what they died, what disease they had and so on. So you set them up and then you literally wait for a decade or something. Um, uh, and very often you wait even longer. Um, so those kinds of cohorts are conducted actually in all kinds of places. So there are some in uh, Northern America, there are some Asian cohorts, there are some British cohorts. Um, and so on. Um, and all of the, those, uh, if you read the papers, the papers are usually fairly boring because they are so standardized uh, because the methods have been established uh, to quite a standardized degree, uh, which is good. Um, but they brought more or less investigate the same stuff. So they investigate, okay, what happens if uh, those two statistically similar groups eat different levels of whatever food group? And what was established very well in those is that a range of foods have uh, um, effects that reduce diet-related disease incidence and mortality, and a range of food groups increases those. So the ones that decrease those are fruits, vegetables, legumes, nuts and seeds, and whole grains. 
the ones that increase are red meat, uh, unprocessed red meat, processed meat in general, sugary beverages, and that's basically it. Uh, so we're dealing with those sort of eight, uh, um, about eight uh, food groups that have been shown to be very sensitive to changes. And all of those have been investigated, also holding those other food groups uh, uh, constant. That is from an observational side. So let's say, you know, uh, what you get out there is uh, eating one more serving of uh, red meat increases your risk of uh, dying from a diet-related disease by roughly 15%. Uh, and th the same kind of order of magnitude you get uh, in the opposite side, a reduction of that, if you eat uh, like one more serving of fruit and veg, uh, just as a, as a general um, order, order of magnitude there. Um, this is obviously all observational. So this, in theory, could be confounded by any uh, amount of unobserved uh, factors that play a role in the disease etiology. So in order to um, uh, make this more credible, what people uh, are looking for are also impacts on so-called intermediate risk factors. Those can be observed within the same year and change with it in the same year. So those would be uh, blood pressure, cholesterol levels, those kinds of things. And there have been, uh, and because they change fairly rapidly, you don't need to do those long observational studies. You can actually do some randomized control trials, which in general um, are um, um, a bit more rigorous scientifically, and they can be done on those timeframes, whereas th those long observational cohort studies um, with those final endpoints of mortality, no RCT can really be conducted, right? Um, but on intermediate risk factors, they can. That would be a bit like that guy, what was his name? About 10 years ago, who only ate McDonald's for a month and then generally felt terrible afterwards, right? Is that the sort of, is that what it would look like? You'd, you'd sort of say, here's something that, here's an yeah. intervention, you know, double your beef intake. Uh, after that, keep everything else constant, see, see what your various underlying uh, indicators of a disease are like. Is that, is that? Sorry? Yeah, sort of. So that would be a controlled feeding study. Um, these days, it <laughs> depends what you're changing in, uh, how you're changing the diet. Uh, so you might get some trouble with uh, getting your ethics. <laughs> if you <Right>. know <laughs> yeah. that it is much unhealthier what you That's prescribe to people. Uh, so usually you try to just offer two different versions and give give the participants a little bit of freedom what they choose and you hope you get a little bit of spread in those um yeah. so also uh, randomized controlled trials are not uh you know are not the answer to everything because yes. um uh they are still they are super context specific right um right of how they are uh, conducted um, and they're very short in, in, in terms of their time frame. But nonetheless, what they find in those is that the changes in intermediate risk factors like blood pressure, cholesterol levels uh, go, uh, go uh, in the same direction. So uh, your okay. blood pressure uh, gets worse if you eat red and processed meat and gets better if you eat uh, all the plant-based other stuff. So that is good. And then the last uh, uh, round of evidence that you want to have is, uh, if possible, you also want to really understand why is it that those foods have those impacts. And for that, you usually need some animal models uh, to understand the pathways. So you do some experiments in mice where you try to establish uh, a, a, an actual pathway. Um, 
So by doing that, uh, and that is sometimes called mechanistic studies. Uh, I mean, there are some things you can do in, uh, in humans as well, but uh, by and large, those mechanistic studies are more uh, animal-based. Um, and there they try to figure out, uh, okay, uh, how is it that this has this and that impact? Um, so for example, for red meat, uh, the things that have been always discussed to be in the causal pathway, um, and that not only comes from mechanistic studies, by the way, but also from uh, uh, observational studies where they uh, control for those, are the levels of fatty acids in meat. So there's lots of saturated fat in, in meat, which has been shown to not be very good. Uh, there's cholesterol in red meat, which uh, uh, is not uh, exactly healthy. There, are, uh, there is heme iron in red meat, uh, well, in all meat, really, uh, that has been, uh, that uh, might be in the causal pathway. And lastly, there are nitrates and nitrates, uh, nitrates uh, that are in speci specifically processed meat, um, in addition to salt. So uh, those two things. Is your bacon uh, and, and cured meats especially, is that, is that right? Exactly. So because of the high levels of sodium and those nitrates and nitrates, uh, uh, those two things might be the reason why especially processed meat is uh, unhealthier than unprocessed red meat. Right. Um, uh, and those things might interact with some other advanced uh, uh, advanced um, oxidation products here that are formed by uh, actually barbecuing or frying the meat. So there are other interactions that, uh, uh, that take place then. So um, lots of different things. Um, and uh, conversely, for fruits and vegetables, we know there are a range of uh, uh, polyphenols and, and uh, uh, phytochemicals that are probably responsible in concert for reducing oxidative stress and reducing diet-related disease in incidents. That's, uh, that's very comprehensive. Thank you for that uh, overview. I think that's, um, that's as a bad detailed uh, description of as I've ever heard. Um, one thing that one sort of does come across uh, in, I suppose, the sort of shadier parts of Facebook uh, are these arguments that people say that... Uh, Red meat is actually fine for you. It's really it's essential because we've you know hunter gatherers, all these kind of things, which are a bit ahistorical and are kind of kind of confused in the way that they're they're argued. Um, one doesn't count. I suppose you encounter a lot the argument that yeah, if 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 meat is lean and and doesn't contain fat, then it's not bad for you. Is that is that still the case? Yeah, from what we can see that is not the case. So we, we can do some, for example, health analysis based on those intermediate risk factors and actually uh, prospectively change the fatty acid composition um, by taking into account the relative risk factors for those specific ingredients. And there right. we see that the fatty acid composition doesn't really uh, matter that much. So heme iron and those nitrates and nitrates might be uh, more responsible for the final health impact. I mean, not one thing can expa explain the, the full impact anyway. So there are probably lots of things going on, uh, which is yeah. the reason why this sort of meal in a pill or in a shake is, is kind of ill-guided because you, can ne you never know exactly what is responsible for what. Um, and you can never isolate the one active yeah. ingredient. So in the past, people have 
tried that and I came up with this sort of vitamin classification and I thought, oh yeah, you know, uh, any health benefits are just due to certain vitamins. And since then we know that is not the case. So the vitamin C potential of uh, any, any fruit, um, is much less than the actual impact that that food has on, on diet related disease incidents. So, and similarly for, for red meat, we don't know exactly which one does something to what degree. Um, but we can say that if you change one of those aspects, probably wouldn't take away the, uh, detrimental health impacts. Um, similarly, all the observational studies that, uh, look at, um, different kinds of meat, um, the newer ones, they do something interesting they call substitution analysis, because um, what also seems to matter is obviously what your baseline diet is, right? So if you compare somebody who has a a fairly healthy diet um, uh, with hardly any meat uh, with somebody who has uh, eats tons of meat, then you see probably big impacts if you have the baseline comparator as somebody who eats also fairly unhealthily, um, maybe not so much, right? So what people do there is they try to identify um, uh, groups of people that uh, seem to have substituted, for example, the, uh, the, the protein section of their foods. So going from processed meat to red meat to poultry to dairy to eggs and so on. And what you can see there is also a very nice uh, uh, relationship uh, or a, a very nice order um, by which any of those major foods are um, 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 are unhealthy or healthy. So you see that uh, processed meat is unhealthier than uh, unprocessed red meat, which is healthier than uh, poultry, which is similarly uh, healthy or unhealthy to dairy and eggs, which is... Um, um, and then it, it, it gets further and um, all of those plant-based foods like uh, nuts, legumes, fruits and vegetables, they are always healthier than any of those meat uh, categories. So from that, uh, even if you wouldn't believe the absolute impact, the absolute relative risk that is deduced from those epidemiological studies, uh, you still see this ordering or classification of what is relatively unhealthier and what is relatively healthier everywhere, basically. So there'll be there'll be there'll be an argument for making uh, a substitution along that sort of healthy healthy sort of chain, uh, almost at whatever stage you are. So if you're eating a lot of processed meat, then red meat, then moving to more poultry would be relatively better. Is that the right yeah. way of putting it? Yeah, yeah exactly. That's, uh, that's super interesting. And all of this um, sort of interacts uh, with whatever underlying state uh, the population as a whole is in, in terms of disease prevalence and what other diseases are going on and all the rest of it. And so, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you, you, you would see these dietary impacts most in countries where people live long enough for the impacts of these uh, factors to become uh, clear. Yeah, no, you can say that. Uh, so in some Asian cohorts, actually, um, there are only uh, some long-term health impacts you don't see so much yet, specifically those uh, related to uh, red and processed meat, because it takes time for coronary heart disease, stroke, uh, and cancers to develop. So there and there, you have lots of confounding with socioeconomic status, because very often mm. uh, people with a higher socioeconomic status 
eat more red and processed, well, mostly red meat um, in uh, in China, for example, but they also have access to better healthcare services. So right. you get uh, uh, lots of confounding there. But um, one thing that changes relatively fast is type 2 diabetes. And there you can already see the, the impact of it. So that gives you sort of a little bit more fast track picture of where the disease progression is going. Fascinating. Okay. So that's, that's definitely something that's important uh, for whoever's listening to this podcast is to sort of think about their own. I mean, that, that's one thing I suppose maybe to, to, to sort of uh, recast that slightly glib comment is that how does one make an assessment of these epidemiological population level effects in terms of your own dietary choices? Is there an equivalence with all this with something like smoking where, you know, it's very well established that it's harmful for you? And uh, certain people will smoke and love smoking, but do they just have to know that there's a there's an impact on their health there? I mean, is 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 that the easy way of putting it, or is there another way? Yeah. So what is done with those um, epidemiological and other studies is very often they are they are taken as the basis for developing um, general dietary guidelines for healthy eating in that case. Um, and what you're looking for uh, in those uh, um, they are called dose response curves, what is the, derived in epidemiological studies. Um, and they give you an indication that something might be causal, right? So if you eat more of a thing, you have more of an impact. Or if you eat less of a thing, uh, the lesser you eat, the less impact you have. So, um, and based on those, um, there is no reason why any of those might be completely linear and there might be somewhere a cutoff point. So, for example, maybe if you eat a certain number of fruits and vegetables, at some point you don't need any more, right? You sort of, you saturate it. Um, for, it used to, people used to think that with fruits and vegetables is at your five a day, right? So, therefore, those re recommendations came about to have five servings of fruits and vegetables. Actually, since then, other epidemiological studies came out that had higher exposure levels, meaning people who ate uh, uh, significantly more than those five, uh, and they could still demonstrate uh, additional health benefits. So it just happened that in those older cohorts, not very many, especially in high-income countries, not very many people even made those five a day in, uh, uh, or even ate more. But now you actually see that even eating more than five a day is still better. Um, conversely, the ones that look at red and processed meat, they usually find an increase in risk going from the very lowest uh, quintile or quartile or whatever, they, however they portion their consumption data, uh, to the next uh, level. So uh, there is always an increase in risk. So from that, you can deduce that the so-called minimal risk, risk exposure level is basically zero. Um, that doesn't mean you should not eat any. Uh, it's obviously up to you how, how much you eat. But if you want to minimize your risk, um, zero would be the, the risk min minimizing level there. And if you put all of those together, you can basically construct uh, general dietary guidelines that tell you, okay, in a, on, on, on a given day or per week, what are the foods that you should, should eat and how, how does a sort of well-balanced and well-composed uh, diet look like? Right. That's, uh, that's really clear. Um, so just sort of stepping to the other side of the, uh, the coin, if that's the right way of putting it, the, the agricultural system uh, has a number of impacts on the environment. Uh, in terms of different food raising, you get different uh, stresses on uh, 
different aspects of of the environmental and, and resource chain. So uh, just off the top of my head, there is this sense that almonds are very uh, water intensive. I hear that in, in uh, respect of um, California. Can you sort of step us through a bit some of the biggest impacts of all these decisions and what they are doing to the planet sort of globally? And then also, you know, in particular regions where it might be better that, to avoid certain certain foods in favor of others? Sure. Um, I mean, the food system is tremendously resource intensive. Uh, if you you know put in a, put your bird's eye view on, then uh, it's responsible for about a third of all greenhouse gas emissions. Um, agriculture is done on about forty percent of the Earth's land surface. It uses more than seventy percent of all fresh water resources, and uh, the overapplication of fertilizers has already resulted in quite a number of so-called dead zones in oceans uh, that are depleted of oxygen levels. So um, there is tremendous uh, environmental impact associated with the way we produce food uh, um, at the moment, and we projected that. If we don't change course, those impacts would increase by about 50 to 90 percent up to 2050. And by then exceed all key environmental limits or planetary boundaries, as they are sometimes called, that are related to agriculture. And those would be limits due to climate change. So it would further basically uh, extreme weather events and other things that are related to climate change. They're related to uh, freshwater use and uh, and ecosystems, uh, land use, biodiversity loss, and biogeochemical flows of nitrogen and phosphorus. Um, so we're really in deep trouble if we don't change course in the way we a produce food and b the kinds of foods that we that we produce. The the counter argument is that um, agriculture produces a, a lot of economic benefit for a lot of people. So there's uh, I'm from a particular part in Wales where, uh, you know, there's a, a good portion of the economy relies on sheep farming. And if you remove uh, this uh, key aspect of the community, then then the world will end, irrespective of climate change, that kind of thing. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm being slightly hyperbolic, but that I, I mean, how do we is there is there a sense in which we should balance those two aims or uh, is the looming catastrophe uh, with regards to those planetary boundaries just really so clear that the change needs to happen fairly rapidly, pretty much everywhere. I mean, one one side is just, you know, um, accounting of emissions and other impacts. And there, the change ne that needs to happen is super rapid. So in order to meet the 1.5 degree target to not have global warming of more than 1.5 degrees, um, I think the, um, uh, the general rule of thumb in terms of decarbonization and reducing greenhouse gas emissions is that you need to have a reduction uh, of 50% every decade, right? This is huge, 50% every yes. decade, right? Um, and that is just accounting, really, right? So there is no, there is not much you, there, there, that you can argue with that. I mean, sometimes what integrated, so-called integrated assessment models do is they introduce some funky um, carbon capture and storage technology that miraculously deals with uh, some of this. But most of that is not demonstrated at scale. Um, and there might be a social backlash to this as well, because uh, if those don't work, then suddenly you might have runaway climate change if there is a big release of uh, carbon that has been captured uh, in, right. in some technological way. 
Um, so on the one side, you have the, basically the, this accounting of, okay, stuff needs to change, otherwise we are doomed. On the other side, you have the social system that uh, needs to deal with, well, how do we change, right? Uh, and there, it's obviously super essential that you take people by the hand and you find um, socially acceptable pathways of change. So nobody would have an interest to making uh, those sheep farmers that you uh, were talking about jobless. So it's really uh, up to pol policymakers to find policies that help to, uh, in this transition and in this tr transition such that um, uh, uh, people have still uh, uh, a means of uh, uh, of earning their livelihood, uh, their, uh, of earning income and having, having um, um, acceptable livelihoods. So if you look in the past, I mean, we have already seen that in Northern Europe with the coal industry. I, I happen right. to come from a part of Germany that was very heavy on uh, producing coal. And that has all collapsed uh, during the time that I grew up, like in the 90s, uh, basically. Uh, and it hasn't been handled very well. So it was always the discussion about, oh, yeah, we need structural change. And sure enough, some formerly coal-producing uh, uh, um, uh, companies and, and places have been turned now into sort of cultural places and you have some ni nice uh, sort of exhibitions and clubs there but lots of people became jobless right so um, it has there was worked. a very similar thing in Wales as well I mean yeah you know, I, I, can... I think we, we sort of uh, ide idealized Germany and uh, <laughs> some parts from, from the sort of Welsh perspective but it's uh, <laughs> another story yeah, uh, it's interesting to know that it was similarly, uh, similarly difficult. Yeah, definitely. But that really shows that, you know, you need to put like social and the safety nets in place and you need to come up with uh, uh, good opportunities where people uh, can work in then, right? Um, yeah. And I mean, if we think about agriculture, that might not be super complicated. So instead of doing sheep farming, um, if we had a different way of dispersing agricultural subsidies, for example, then those could be tied to so-called ecosystem services, you know, uh, things that preserve river flows, preserve biodiversity, uh, where it's not only about food production, but also about other, uh, other things that basically keep our planet healthy. So yeah. if, we, if we did that, then sheep farmers might have different sources of income. Um, if we... Uh, introduce also ways of um, making money that is reliant on using land resources in a, uh, from an energy sense. And you can think about, well, I mean, I'm not sure about how it is in Wales, but in other places you can think about co-use of um, with uh, solar panels on some parts of the land that are high enough so you can still have use of the land below, or you can go yeah. grow um, new generation bioenergy crops, like not, not the stuff that is not very energetically useful. Um, so there, uh, or you can do some rewilding and afforestation that also sucks carbon uh, out of the atmosphere. So there are lots of different things that farmers who now are very specialized on um, livestock could do that would generate income for them. Right. Yeah. It's, um, that's, uh, that's almost a, that's a, dare I say it, a note of optimism. I, 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 I think I'll probably start. Um, I haven't been asking people so far how optimistic they feel with regards to these uh, problems of, you know, climate change, health, and the, uh, and the global uh, system. But do, do you feel optimistic about the next sort of thirty years? 
Oh gosh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so I mean, climate change research or climate change related research, I do more than a decade now, and I feel really not enough has changed, and policymakers only now wake up to the easiest side of climate change, like the energy system mm. side uh, that is so clear that has to change and decarbonize. And I think we're still way off uh, that policymakers and maybe the general public to some degree uh, accepts and realizes the urgency that the food system needs to uh, transform, uh, needs to be transformed. Uh, so, uh, I don't know, um, optimistic pessimistic is maybe the wrong uh the wrong dichotomy uh yeah. realistically uh, uh, those things won't be super fast i think and for researchers who see the data every day is uh, damn frustrating uh, that yes. things are so slow um uh, and i don't know how to deal with that properly but <laughs> no it becomes a bit of a psychological uh a psychological process doesn't it where you have to <laughs> yeah i i i have um I don't have a method yet, but I, I have been looking for methods uh, to make myself feel less uh, sort of uh, like the problem is impossible uh, and more like, you know, we're contributing in some way to a process that may be helping. Um, but that's, it's not easy. Yeah, maybe we need like researchers anonymous, uh, climate change researchers anonymous, where yeah. we sit in a group. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, I've looked at the energy data again. It's horrible. <laughs> right, oh. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. Uh, well, wonderful. I think that's um, I think that's that's some excellent stuff in there, Marco. Thank you very much. Um, I think I will say sure. I'll do the little spiel there. The, thank you very much, uh, Marco, for joining us and giving such a clear outline of what we can do in a, in a, in a positive way. I mean, there is, it's, it's one thing having a problem that you don't know how to solve, but it's another thing having a problem for which there is a solution. So in some sense, maybe the, uh, the, the pessimism that I uh, attempted to elicit from you uh, can be counted uh, from that. So thanks very much for joining us and, uh, my pleasure. And, you know, uh, if ever you get a bit too pessimistic or so, uh, don't forget there are other things in, in life uh, as well. And listen to some nice techno and go dancing. <laughs>